This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Forest sustainability invites us to kind of think, okay, when and where does it make sense? Keeping these forests on the landscape, balancing the needs of the present and the future, balancing economic needs with ecological services and systems and habitat and open space. We have enough forest ground to be able to do that. Sustainable forestry's role can be a tool to help these forests stay balanced and stay resilient to provide the habitat that we need for grouse and woodcock and hundreds of other species. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle. I'm here today with someone from clear across the country over in New York, and I'm glad we're getting some geographic diversity and some subject diversity here. We're going to talk a little bit about rough grouse. We're going to talk about some forestry stuff. I have Todd Waldron here today. How's it going, Todd? Hey, Aaron. I'm doing great. I've been looking forward to this combo, uh, and I'm a big fan of your podcast and excited to be here. Well, thanks. Uh, I'm excited to have you, and I'm going to tell folks like we usually do a little bit about you, and then we're going to grill you for a second on what you've been doing outside, and we hope it's something really great. So first, let me tell folks about you, and we'll get moving. So Todd is a is just a devout hunter-angler conservationist. He's been working in conservation and, and forestry for about 26 years now, and he's the Northeast Forest Conservation Director for the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. He lives out in New York in the Adirondacks. He's also a podcast. Uh, a podcast host in his own right of a couple of different things. He has the East to West hunting podcast. And then he also hosts the Outdoor Feast podcast uh, by Modern Carnivore for folks who've seen that. So he's got a lot of good experience in the areas we love to talk about. So Todd, welcome. Thanks for being here. And let's just start. uh, (laughs) Go ahead. No, it's. Uh, I'm just glad to be here, Aaron. Uh, excited to have this convo and uh, looking forward to digging into a whole bunch of conservation talk. Good. Um, well, let's let's start as most conservation does with some sort of outdoor experience and hear what you've been up to out in the woods and waters lately. 
Yeah, well, thanks, Aaron. So uh, summertime in the Northeast is always a wonderful time, and especially in the Adirondack Park. You know, we've got six million acres here, uh, two and a half million acres of uh, forever wild state lands. So plenty of outdoor opportunities. And, uh, you know, it's a great time. My family and I like to camp. So there's always something to do through the four seasons. And this summer, you know, we spent a couple of uh, couple of trips just camping at some lakes and ponds and just really enjoy that. Doing some paddling, doing some fishing, you know, and it's, sep- you know, it's September now. So moving into fall, you know, hunting season's coming along. Bird season opens up on October 1st. And so there's just uh, there's never a loss for great outdoor activity in a place like this. It's it's great. Excellent. Uh, well, for my outdoor adventures, I'll keep them short and sweet. Uh, I have been helping my boy on his first bow hunting soiree. He got his first bow hunting tag this year. We were up recently a little bit higher in elevation, got close to a couple of bucks, about 60 yards. Not quite, not quite good enough yet for, for distance, for what he's comfortable with, but we got close the other day. He's been out a bunch. Um, and I'm actually starting to do a little bit of harvesting of the vegetable type as well outdoors. Uh, the garden's really starting to throw us a bunch of veggies. So tomatoes and beets and carrots and we're starting to can a little bit, things like that. So a little bit outside gearing up. We'll be going on a muzzleloader hunt about the time this podcast runs. We'll be out there in the woods. Uh, my boy has a muzzleloader tag for elk. So it's, it's, I like to say, uh, not Christmas season, but this season is the most wonderful time of the year. So I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you are. That's all amazing. And, uh, you know, September in Colorado is this really, really special time. So I'm looking forward to hearing about it and wish you the best. Well, thanks. I hope, uh, I hope we have some good stories. There's usually something to talk about, but, uh, he, uh, my, my son had several close calls and, and, and good experiences last year didn't didn't bring home an elk but he's he's really chomping at the bit this year so anyway let's let's jump into this podcast and talk some conservation i think uh what i love talking with people like you about people who've been in it for a while you know you've got this 25 plus years experience being a a forester a conservationist a hunter a lot of different things and and you cover the whole country in your podcast so you've got this broad spectrum of of ways that you know about things, the people you've talked to, experiences. And, you know, I think let's just talk conservation in general at first. The trends you're seeing, you know, your background, what are you, what are you learning? What are you seeing? What are the big things out there that are standing out to you kind of in the sporting conservation world right now? Yeah, that's a great question, Aaron, and it's a it's a really big question. So I'm glad we're just launching in, you know, on a big level like that. So, yeah, I've been uh, working in the forest conservation speed space, as you said, for about 26 years, and uh, it is an exciting time to be in conservation right now. You know, I think that there's a lot of momentum. Um, I, I get excited about broad initiatives and partnerships. You know, those are fundamentals to conservation. 
um, that just are timeless, right? If we look through the history of conservation, the need for groups to come around commonalities around forest sustainability and around grasslands in the in the Midwest and in the Western states and around climate and around, you know, resiliency and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think that there's, uh, it's an exciting time. We've had some big wins recently that have been, you know, bipartisan kind of like wins that push through like with LWCF. Um, that's really exciting stuff for me. You know, a lot of conservation has been working on LWCF issues for years and years. Um, so to see those kinds of wins move through, I think it's, it's really exciting. It's a good time to be involved. And I also think that there's a situation where, um, you know, coming out of COVID, um, you know, I don't know how things were in Colorado, but in New York, we hunkered down for the last year and a half. And one thing really kind of came to light, and that's how much people love and need the outdoors um, through situations like this, through crises where, you know, it's really hard. We have these public health crises. We're kind of holed up in our homes and just the, the ability to connect with nature and get out and enjoy that space um, has never been stronger in my mind. So there's a need for it. There's some momentum going with conservation and I get up every morning excited to be working in this space. Yeah, I concur. There's, there's a lot of cool things going on right now. And I think one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is that, that switch over, right? You've been in kind of private forestry consultation for a while you do this podcast too. Now you're now you're in the nonprofit world. Like talk about the contrast a little bit there. What what were you doing before and then what got you into this new role uh, with the Rough Grouse Society? How how did that all come down? So yeah, I've been working in a lot of different spaces in forest conservation for many years. Most of my career was on the private sector side in the East. So I worked for 10 years for international paper company in the endless mountains of Northern Pennsylvania on the front end of my career and really learned the value of um, the business side of things and the partnerships and how corporations and private landowners, how important they are to the conservation scene, especially in places like the East where, you know, in, in a lot of states, maybe 80% of the land is privately held. And so we have this public private matrix and, you know, everybody has to be at the table. So it was really kind of cool to start out from that framework. And after about 10 years, you know, I, I got into the consulting realm and I really like that part of it, Aaron, you know, working with landowners. One thing I learned was that there's a lot of reasons that people love to own forest land and enjoy forest land and they relate to nature and it's about wildlife and it's about going out with their kids and it's about having this family legacy to be able to continue and all these great memories. And so being able to work with the landowners like that, and we worked a lot with government agencies and municipalities, but just like hearing, you know, what they enjoy about forests and how many benefits that forests can provide simultaneously, and then being able to just work through them with some options for how to enjoy their property and how to be able to optimize it, um, to be able to work with it sustainably, to keep the forest balanced, you know, all of that stuff was really cool. But all along that career trajectory, 
you know, I've always been an avid hunter and angler and a conservation volunteer. And I've spent a lot of time over the years out there, you know, doing cleanups and getting involved as, you know, so many terrific volunteers who share the same passions as you and I and the listeners here. And so when the opportunity came up to transition to Roth Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society, I was just absolutely thrilled. It felt like a, a great transition for me. The timing was good. And one thing I'm really excited about, along with the big vision of, you know, balanced forests and wildlife and being a dot connector, you know, the RGS and AWS, that's kind of our niche. But the people that have coalesced in the organization, uh, my coworkers are really great. So everything kind of came together. Um, you know, the stars aligned and I, I'm really thankful and fortunate to be um, working in the nonprofit place right now. And, you know, the cool thing is, is that all those relationships and all the landowners and all the connections through all those years, um, they just spill over into the nonprofit space and the, the partnerships are, we can talk about that, but the partnerships are incredibly important um, to being able to move any kind of conservation work ahead. Yeah, they sure are. Um, and that's kind of one of the one, things I wanted to talk to you about too, is this, so I can deduce a little from your title and from, from some of the things that we've talked about, but tell me about what your role entails. You know, give me a, give me a big picture. How are you going to go about doing your business with, with the Rough Grouse Society? Yeah, I'd be glad to talk about that all day. <laughs> so, you know, just some backstory and context. Um, rough grouse, you know, everybody that knows about rough grouse knows that they're one of America's greatest birds, right? They're in a whole bunch of states, the Midwest and the Northeast and the Southern Apps. And, you know, as of late, over the last couple of decades, um, rough grouse populations have been declining because of some deteriorating habitat diversity issues. And so rough grouse are, are um, listed as species of greatest conservation need in 19 states in their state wildlife action plans. American woodcock are listed in 29. And so this is a bigger signal of like forest conditions in general. And like, you know, what we're finding is, is we're losing forest habitat diversity. And as rough grouse and woodcock are bellwethers or barometers, um, species. Um, what that means is that we're seeing declines in other wildlife species as well. So it's like a broad forest sustainability issue that we're dealing with. And rough grouse are emblematic of that. And when rough grouse thrive, we have healthy, balanced, resilient forests that can provide all the other benefits. Um, and so, you know, my job is a dot connector. Uh, my job as forest conservation director for RGS and AWS is to work with partners um, and to get in line with initiatives to bring sustainable forestry and conservation and smart wildlife friendly policies together and get work done on the ground. So, you know, we're, we're a habitat organization, you know, we're working on forest habitat, we're trying to get land, balanced landscapes in place. And so I'm just working with a whole bunch of you know, wonderful private and agency partners and land trusts and conservation groups and, and our great volunteers, chapter leaders to, to try to get landscape level, region wide, big initiatives in place to, to help our forest be sustainable and balanced. That's awesome. That, that 
little riff there gave me about four different questions. Um, but first I'll do a little bit of a plug because you touched on the swaps, the statewide action plans and species of greatest conservation need. And, you know, at National Wildlife Federation, one of the biggest things we've been championing for a few years now is the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which for folks who don't know, it would fund uh, that work and recovering those species. And, you know, those are the species that are headed towards trouble, right? They're declining. They've got a lot of different habitat issues. They've got, you know, just population issues. And the Recovering America's Wildlife Act would finally fund many of the agencies to kind of tackle some of these problems and hopefully keep them from getting to the endangered species list, which, you know, causes a lot of trouble for, for a lot of things. Um, we need it at times for, for certain species, but I think kind of back along the lines of what you were already saying, those collaborative processes, those, those partnerships, those are the kind of things we want to see, uh, you know, help wildlife species and get them recovered and get them back in a good place rather than, you know, the hammer, the ESA. Um, so first, just a plug for that, but then a question about the work you're doing. So does, does Rough Grouse Society, do you do actual forestry or is it your folks? Do you have them? Do you contract with people? What do you do there on the ground? How, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question, Aaron. So we do a little bit of both. The way we're set up with our, our forest conservation model is that we have regional uh, forest conservation directors in, um, I think it's four regions. I'm in the Northeast, which is New York and New England. Um, and then I have three colleagues that cover the, the mid-Atlantic region, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Maryland, down into the Southern Apps. And, and so there's a region associated with the Southern Appalachians where many people don't know about the rich history of, of grouse, but there's a, there's a really great um, connection there in the, in the Appalachians. And then also, you know, one of our core areas is in the Lake States and, and Midwest. So uh, we have conservation directors, we have wildlife foresters um, in some of those regions. Um, Charlie Fairs works down in the Southern Apps. Uh, Jared Elm works out in the Midwest in, I think, Wisconsin. And so um, we're doing a little bit of both. Um, so, you know, our goal is to, to, you know, really make an impact with acres and outreach, really. Um, that's our one of our objectives is to get habitat work done and to get forest balanced. So it's a, it's a network. Um, some of the work we do ourselves, but really we're, a lot of cases, we're just like connecting the dots, working with partners like, you know, um, certified consulting foresters and people in that space, landowners, and we're just amplifying their work. And what we're trying to help them do is to get, you know, through our funding and through our models and through our programs to help them get work done for habitat that might not otherwise get done. That's good stuff. Let's, let's also talk too. when, when you're, when you're telling me about this, I was thinking back to what you said again, you know, here, here are these species, they're, they're listed as, you know, species of greatest conservation concern in multiple states. Let's just talk a little bit about what's going on with them. You know, what has happened, where, how'd they get to this state? What are the problems? What are the, some of the solutions you guys are pointing to? Sounds like a lot of habitat work, but maybe just a broad overview of, of some of those things. Yeah. Uh, so one of the, one of the themes, the common threads, um, that we're seeing around the state wildlife action plans and habitat and the implications for why grouse and woodcock and, you know, golden wing warblers and other species are on those lists 
is that there's a there's been a general trend of a habitat diversity decline throughout the eastern forest and the midwestern forest for a long time. And so we have this what my colleague Ben Larson calls a sea of sameness. And the good news is is that we have like something like 700 million acres of forest in the in the US and a good portion of that is in the eastern United States, the hardwood forest, the northern forest. So we're blessed with these forests that can provide so many um, benefits to us. But like it's generally, if you look at the history of, of forests and how they kind of came out of the early 20th century, um, what we have is kind of like this homogenous, single-aged kind of forest that's all about 80 to 100 years. This is like a general sweep of the brush. Um, but like what we're finding is, is that a lot of wildlife species need diversity there. They need different conditions. Imagine if all the people in the country were all 75 years old, what that would do for sustainability, for population growth and so forth. Same thing with forests. So like we have this situation where um, there's plenty of forest ground, but there's threats and the threats are things like, you know, this habitat decline. And so traditionally forests have diversity on the landscape through like natural disturbance, like an ice storm comes through, a fire comes through, or in the case of the eastern U.S., you know, prescribed burning was a, a land management tool that indigenous nations used for centuries. Um, but like as natural disturbance to create this diversity has waned. Like we've we've gotten this imbalance. We're out of whack. We're out of balance with our habitat. And so that's in a lot of extent of what kind of work that we're doing is trying to work with partners to bring some of that balance back to have different forest types and different forest ages and like having kind of on a landscape level, these patchworks and mosaics of this diversity that can benefit species. And as you know, and your listeners know, species also need different kinds of habitat throughout the year. So grouse, you know, thrive in this patchwork of very young forests and having some nearby very old forests and having open forests in between. And that all helps with their, you know, their nesting. It all helps with their breeding. It all helps with their brooding. So, you know, there's just, that's what we work on is the diversity issue. Um, we're out of balance. And so we're just trying to work with partners to, to bring some balance back. And those, those, Balance conditions um, are far more um, are far more impactful than just providing habitat for grouse and woodcock. You know that they offer a path toward resiliency. Like when we're thinking about climate change, forests offer so many other things. You know, trout streams, clean water, clean air, open space, recreation. The wonderful thing about forests is they really can provide all those benefits, um, and and you know we're blessed to have all that. Yeah, that's a good good explanation. Thank you. And I, I think it's probably a good way that we could transition t- transition a little bit to, you know, just forest sustainability and talking. You know, forests are are dynamic, right? They're but they're a huge deal and they're kind of complicated. They're they're big for drinking water. They're big for climate resilience. They're big for you know cooling. Uh, there are a lot of different things, but. You know, one of the things I know you're passionate about is just getting outdoor enthusiasts a little bit more engaged with forest conservation. And so I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. I know we brought that up as a subject we might cover, and it seems like this might be a good chance to just jump over to that because, I don't know, I think I think the the forestry part of it is maybe less understood. And, and I see, at least in the media, there's some pretty um, 
what I call them, simplistic ways that the people talk about them. Like, you know, it's hot. Now there's a fire all burned down. It's all ruined. You know, it's like that. It's just, there's so much more complicated than that. And I'm thinking of, you know, personally, I'm looking out the window and I had a, I was evacuated a couple of years ago for, for a forest fire right near me. And I go up there now, this was in, this was two, uh, three years ago now in, in 2018. And it's magical. I mean, it's one of the coolest, unique, different kinds of forests. It used to be a lot of just kind of monotone Doug fir transitioning into to lodgepole. Now all the the little gullies have just tons and tons of cottonwoods that weren't there before. Um, there's fireweed. There's all kinds of different forbs, new trees, and it's just much more dynamic. And I can imagine for a grouse or an elk or all those species we all love that's just so much better habitat. We know it is. And it's this fire, we were lucky. It's a mosaic, right? It, it burnt some spots. It didn't burn others. It patched, it jumped, it moved. And so it's got a lot of those elements that you were speaking of that, that edge structure, the diversity, the, the really cool thing. So anyway, that's, that's an example of just my, you know, basic understanding of ecology. You walk into that forest and you can tell, this is this serves more critters. This serves more things uh, here how it is now than what it was before. So maybe that's a, a long-winded way of helping you jump into this forest conservation topic that I just pinged you on. But <laughs> give us a little give us a little on that if you would. That's an amazing story. That's an it's a great segue and it's a great springboard, Aaron, to talk about this stuff. So Thanks for explaining that. And I think, yeah, for people that are listening, if you're into the outdoors, you hike or maybe you hunt or fish, I think you already kind of have a really great grasp on how things change. Like, for instance, through a hunting season, like, for instance, you're out there hunting with your son in October in Colorado for elk. And, you know, those elk are going to be someplace else in, in November, right, when snow comes to the high country. Uh, you know, you've, everybody that's listening knows how the seasons change. And just like seasons change throughout fishing season or hiking season or hunting season, forests change as well. But the forests change much slower. It's a much more chronic kind of change unless there's like this big, you know, violent uh, disturbance like a hurricane or something like that. Um, but the idea that what you said about forests being dynamic is a very important baseline for understanding forest sustainability, the fact that things are always changing, that habitat needs change, that things are shifting through time and space. Um, and I think it's hard for us to grasp because we experience our favorite moments in the outdoors, you know, in, in a time frame that's like in the here and now, but, you know, forests are kind of evolving and changing over, you know, maybe a hundred years and sometime, you know, 10 years, a decade. So it's a much slower process, but it's always happening. And, you know, the wonderful thing about forest sustainability um, and, and forest sustainability is kind of a, uh, an umbrella term, I think, because there's a lot of definitions and a lot of ways to come into what that actually means. But like for me, I kind of think about forest sustainability in kind of two general frameworks. And, and one is thinking about balance, right? I think about the, the balancing aspects of, of what it means to keep these important forests on the landscape intact. And, you know, when you look at what many of the issues that we're dealing with, with climate or with growth or development, um, you know, one of the problems that we face is that once forests are no longer intact, once they start getting fragmented, 
um, we start seeing a lot of detrimental impacts to habitat, the corridors for traveling, for migrations, for, you know, all of that stuff. So keeping, you know, keeping balance so that forest landscapes can stay intact is, is an important thing. And there's a couple of ways that we can get to that. You know, I mean, one, you know, common tool is through, you know, just protecting lands and, you know, putting conservation easements on properties to keep them intact. You know, and I think the thing is, is that, you know, sustainable forestry is an is also an important tool, especially in the Midwest and the East in terms of working forests and having working landscapes um, where, you know, forest landscapes stay uh, intact and healthy and vibrant and and balanced um, and working and providing all these different benefits. And, and so what I guess I'd like to have people know is that sometimes the best way to protect forests is by setting them aside. Uh, and that's an important aspect because they're special places doing the right things for the right places. But sometimes the right thing for particular forests is by through like this active working forest landscape where we're managing them through sustainable forestry practices. You know, we're using chainsaw conservation like my my colleague Ashley Peters likes to talk about that. But like both of those approaches can fit in the toolkit. I think with what we often come to is like this dichotomous kind of conversation of like, is it okay to cut trees or not cut trees? And I think like forest sustainability invites us to kind of think around that dichotomy in terms of like, okay, when and where does it make sense? Um, you know, having a full toolkit, um, you know, keeping these forests on the landscape, balancing the needs of the present and the future, balancing economic needs with ecological services and systems and habitat and open space. Um, we have enough forest ground to be able to do that. And while there's competing interests on a particular acre, I think the big picture is, is when we look at kind of like what we've got to work with, uh, 750 million acres, we really can provide all these things. And so keeping a lot of those tools in the toolbox is like one aspect that I think is really important. And understanding that sustainable forestry's role can be a tool to help these forests stay balanced and stay resilient to provide the habitat that we need for grouse and woodcock and hundreds of other species, you know, having different diversity on the landscape, old forests, young forests, middle-aged forests, um, you know, all of that is important. So I think there's a, you know, that's kind of how I fit into the whole forest sustainability piece. And I think there's, you know, the wonderful thing is, is that we really can, we have a lot to work with. Yeah. So talk about a little bit for, for listeners out there, you know, how, how can a, a regular Joe or Jane that wants to get engaged a little bit on forest conservation, you know, across the country, what should they be thinking about? What are ways they can kind of, you know, get the, get the big picture fairly easy and engage and help on, you know, their limited time? Yeah, that's always a great question, Aaron. And so, you, you know, the one thing comes to mind in terms of supporting conservation organizations like National Wildlife Federation, the work, the great work that you're doing, and a whole lot of other conservation groups, RGS, AWS, and you, everybody knows that there's a lot of conservation groups out there. And, you know, supporting them when you can, if you have the money, um, a, a group that um, really resonates with your passions is always a, a great way to to get involved with conservation. And I think if you're if you're interested in really kind of digging deeper into like 
getting involved with how your particular favorite public land might be managed. You know, there's a lot of opportunities to engage around that. Um, there's public input and public engagement. Most agencies, you know, especially the Forest Service through the, the NEPA process for public and meetings and just getting involved and, you know, offering comments and showing up to tours and all that stuff. You know, if you have time and interest and, and that's your level of engagement, um, you can do that. Like I, I work um, with partners on the Green Mountain National Forest in Vermont and they, you know, the agency there, the Forest Service people have um, timber tours, they have wildlife tours, they have public meetings for input. All of that stuff is great. Um, if that's not for you and you don't have time, don't worry about it. Like a lot of the conservation groups like us are working on that stuff. So support us however it seems appropriate to you. You know, it can it can be, um, you know, whatever seems to just make sense for you if that, if that helps. I like to say that... Uh conservation isn't a spectator sport, but at the same time, everybody's got a lot of different things going on in their life. And if you can't do it, one of the easiest things you can do, like, like you said, is, you know, throw the 35 bucks at a few different organizations that, you know, care about the same things you do. They're out there working hard all the time on policy and on the ground stuff. And, you know, just being good advocates for, for the wild places and wild critters. So those are the quick and easy things you can do. And uh, then there's there's pretty much every level of depth you can imagine that you want to get into. You you talked about NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, which maybe or maybe not folks know know that acronym, but that's basically what sets the stage and creates the process by which we manage forests, whether it's travel management or you know energy development or forestry or lots of different things that that instigates the the process by which we make decisions on public land. So that's thick sometimes, you know, you'll see a, you'll see a proposal and a, a draft EIS, which is an environmental impact statement or an environmental assessment. And you'll get to see kind of what they're laying out. And then you go, Hey, does that make sense? Does that fit my needs? Does that, you know, does that appropriately steward these different resources out there? And, and you can provide input and you should, a lot of times, uh, particularly when folks have, you know, really uh, dynamic and and thoughtful experiences to share with the foresters and the and the different agencies, they take that input and they and they alter how they're looking at it and they, you know, it creates better outcomes for for the resource. So, get engaged in that for sure. Uh, I think that'd be one thing I would promote. Absolutely. And now let's pause for a message from our partner podcast. Hey everyone, this is Marsha Brownlee from Artemis Sportswomen. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. I think one thing I wanted to talk to you about too, uh, Todd, is is climate. You know, forests are so critical to climate change, you know, mitigation. Uh, you know, we've lost a lot of forests. I mean, I think this year everybody understands how, much, how many millions of acres have, have gone up in smoke, particularly on the West Coast in Oregon, Washington, California. California is yet again about to break yet a new record 
for umpteen <laughs> thousands and millions of acres burning, no end in sight. Um, you know, reforesting those places, doing the habitat restoration, those kinds of things are going to be key to mitigating against, you know, as it gets hotter and more of that stuff comes along. So I want to talk about that and just give you kind of the open floor because throughout your, your private, you know, work. And then now as a conservationist and a nonprofit worker for a, for a species organization, tell me what you're seeing. I mean, we can relate it to grouse. We can, you know, talk about your personal experiences, but one of the things we're doing all the time is, is trying to tell those narratives and and help the sporting community feel more comfortable with that. And I'm going to ask you a follow-up question uh, after you tell me this, because it's interesting to me how the sporting community particularly perceives this stuff, but just, just generally let's talk about climate in your, in your space and what you're seeing. That is a big topic to talk about. And and I'll say that, yeah, there's no doubt that when you look at climate goals, you know, global goals with um, sustainable development goals that the UN has established and like maybe people are familiar with that, but like trying to um, keep, you know, global warming to like one and a half degrees Celsius over a certain period of years um, and all the strategies that are entailed with that. And on a national level, there is no doubt that forests play an incredibly important critical role um, to the whole climate change atmosphere and peace, you know, and so there's a couple of different elements to that you know there's um the the part about um, carbon sequestration and storage and the roles that forests can play in mitigating um, global warming through absorbing all the carbon carbon dioxide that they do the greenhouse gases and storing them through woody fiber and in the soil and everything like that and that's really i think you know that's dominated the conversation around forest role in in climate action, right? I mean, when you look at trends over the last several years with um, carbon programs and carbon markets that monetize this and incentivize trees um, to be growing, to be storing carbon. Um, to be, you know, registered and formalized programs, um, huge trend and huge demand for that. And that's not going away anytime soon. So trees can absorb carbon dioxide and and that's going to be a big role in the climate piece. Um, the other piece that I think is really important for people to understand um, that probably doesn't get as much attention or financing as the carbon sequestration is how forests um, can play a role in resiliency and biodiversity and and what that means, like adaptation to climate change. Because as we experience climate change, you know, that's going to put stress on existing conditions, right? So like I just read someplace that I think it was the Nature Conservancy in Vermont had a map that said that, you know, habitat is going to be migrating northward and upward over the ensuing years. And it can be as much as maybe 10 miles a year. So there's these dynamics that are playing out. And healthy, like resilient, diverse forests can play a role in in both of those arenas, right? Because like, I think there's a conversation around carbon sequestration where it gets kind of simplified to think that the best way to sequester the optimum amount of carbon is to just not cut trees and to just have more trees out there. But it's not quite as simple as that because not all trees are healthy and you have like some benefits to having, you know, older trees that store carbon and younger trees that um, that can sequester it faster because they're growing quicker. And then you just have all the other services that forests provide like habitat and 
biodiversity and water and everything else. And so we can't just isolate this into one particular arena around the sequestration piece. But like, I think looking at it in terms of t totally acknowledging its important role in that and, and working to find programs that are friendly to all the other services, the ecosystem services that forests provide for wildlife habitat. And I think there's, there's a key space um, in all of this for sustainable forestry and forest sustainability and some active forest management where it makes sense. Because I think that having um, these diverse landscapes that we're talking about that impact grouse, um, you know, that also provides that diversity provides some benefit to resiliency to climate change, right? Having different conditions, having different species, having, you know, different trees and habitat needs being served and providing corridors, right? So I think like, I think we can all relate to how diversity can help with that resiliency um, and how we adapt to climate over time. But like specifically, like for instance, like with grouse, um, I'll give you an example, like in the Great Lakes states or in Maine or in New York, um, in the wintertime, grouse are, are snow um, roosters, right? They can dig into the snow and they, they do that for thermal regulation when, when the weather gets cold, maybe in December, and they do it to avoid predation too. And so a specific example is like, okay, if we start getting um, warmer springs, warmer falls, less snowfall, you know, that, then that starts influencing grouse populations, right? So there's a tangible example of how less snowpack at any particular time in the, in the winter or later snowpack could impact grouse populations um, negatively. Or like, for instance, with any, you know, woodcock or migrating birds, for instance. So um, as, as climates changes over time, if there's shifting weather and patterns and spring comes later or there's more volatility, um, the timing of those migrations, the timing of when trees bud out, you know, the volatility around not just warming, but like ex extremes in like weather conditions where it's warm this week and then cold next week because it's still April. And, you know, so all of those things come into play. So as hunters and anglers, our habitat um, will definitely be influenced by, by climate change. And so like having having one tool, you know, um, among many to be able to mitigate that is important. And I think that having balanced resilience forest landscapes and a lot of diversity is one way to, to deal with all of those things. Yeah, you're right. It's, uh, you made me think about three or four different things when you, when you were talking there. Um, I remember hearing a story cause I think one of the things people don't understand about climate very well, right. Is if you warm the planet overall, what it's going to create in general is more volatility, Right. So it won't just mean everything's warmer and everybody just feels like it's a little bit warmer. Sometimes you'll feel that. But other the other thing that they really talk about, the, the scientists talk about is is these extreme events and the volatility. And I think we're seeing some of that. And speaking of Woodcock, I remember talking to a, a fellow from Michigan and he, he was talking about when they're when they're got their chicks coming and these late season storms that are just erratic and they come and they really bombard the habitat with something colder and nastier than they, than it would normally be uh, later. And that, you know, a lot of people would go, well, look, if it's colder later, then clearly maybe, maybe warming isn't a problem, but it actually, 
the science tells us that the volatility and the extreme events are exactly what we're going to be seeing. And so it follows right along with that. Um, and I think, you know, science is, is difficult to follow on something that, that dynamic. And it's hard to say that specifically is probably climate change. But there's some other things. You mentioned snowpack. Uh, you know, we're seeing in many places two, three weeks different in by the time the snow persists, you know, uh, in in the fall. When it hits the ground, it, how, what, what date does it start staying on the ground? And that's two or three weeks later. Uh, we're also seeing two or three weeks earlier on the melt and, you know, things like that in the spring. So those are things that, you, you know, you might not think right away have an impact, but for something like you were talking about, uh, with the grouse, you know, nestling down in the snow for thermal regulation, that's a big deal. Um, I wanted to ask you too, you know, with your, you, you, you hang around with a bunch of sportsmen and women and been doing this for a long time. We see a reluctance for, for many of the sportsmen and women to, to talk about it sometimes or to, you know, even acknowledge it, uh, climate change. Where do you think that comes from? And, you know, I'll ask you besides that, you know, what can we be doing about it as far as, you know, our community that knows it's something we need to address? What do you think we ought to be, ought to be doing to, to move the needle? Well, first, I want to acknowledge that I understand that the, you know, the politics around hunting and fishing in the environment are complex and complicated. And sure. so I get I get when people struggle with um, with some of this stuff because it's worth struggling through and it's a lot to, to, to deal with. You know, so I acknowledge all of that. I think I think a lot of it, you know, comes from like there's this tension as hunters and anglers sometimes and other groups as well. But like I think identity I don't want to say identity politics, but like, I think that, you know, when we, we, we make decisions based upon cultural influences and our peers and our priorities and everything else. Right. And so some of these issues are embedded and they're nested and they're hard to work through and like acknowledging climate change as a particular policy for a hunter and angler might put other positions that hunter and anglers have kind of compromised or in jeopardy, you know, stuff like that. So I, I think that in part it's informed by, you know, our, our identity people. If you look at how we make decisions, um, we make decisions, we're kind of like bounded rationalists where we make decisions that justify what we're already thinking and with the values that we support and the lens that we see through things. You know, facts don't always encourage us to make decisions. We, we see that and that's been incredibly amplified through social media, right? It's created these silos and we just take facts and look at them through the lens and either accept or reject. So I, I think that with hunters and anglers, you know, with the politics of, of environmentalism and conservation and where all this stuff fits in, there could be some reluctance um, based on what our what our beliefs are, what party we belong to, what we support, and what's compromised by supporting A or B. You know, so, you know, I think that that's something that is there, and I think we need to acknowledge it. It's the same thing with, like, you know, lead ammunition. It's the same thing with a lot of other um, things that we deal with, uh, with habitat. Uh, but I think that, you know, it, I think that in, the thing is that one thing I've learned with the environment and with the outdoors is that this can, you know, these are bipartisan issues. Like we all have a huge stake in this. And whether I'm a, you know, a conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat or an independent or whatever, you know, there are a lot of commonalities and, and we're all in this. 
and the outdoors provide um you know so much to all of us and and we can all win from that and so i think that like acknowledging the you know all of this stuff and taking some of the partisanship away and some of the identity away and looking at the commonalities that we can all come out victorious with um is important and there's no doubt that like hunters and anglers have always led the way um, in in the North American conservation movement, and so there is definitely a place for hunters and anglers to to look at climate change and to be a, at that table with other partners and to be able to have that voice for what it means for our wildlife and the future of the habitat and all the work that we've done for you know well over a hundred years now. Yeah, I keep trying to promote that narrative of, you know, good habitat equals opportunity. It doesn't matter where you're from or or what you, you know, what you believe in healthy forests, healthy grasslands, these things. If they're if they're in good good shape, everybody benefits. We get more hunting and fishing opportunity, more wildlife opportunity, you know, in general. Communities are healthier. There's just so many benefits. There's there's lots of things that point to you know, the health of communities, even with their proximity to something that's, uh, you know, a forest or a, or an open space. There's, there's a lot of good things. And man, I, I, I really try to help at least promote the idea of not letting some of these political narratives divide us. Right. You know, I think it, it serves, it serves some politicians, but it cert- certainly doesn't serve us. Uh, we need to stick together and tackle these big problems together. So I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, well said, Aaron. I completely agree. Well, good. Let's let's talk a little bit too um, before you go. I know we wanted to talk a little bit about just conservation and, and the future of it, and you know how how it's so dynamic and how how we want to kind of usher in this new next step for for conservation. And I'll I'll give you the floor because I know you wanted to talk just a little bit about that and and how we can shape our future, maybe most specifically. Thanks for letting me talk about that, because that's something that I'm really passionate about is looking ahead uh, to conservation and where things are going and, and where the opportunities are. And, you know, I would say that, you know, for folks that have never really looked at the history of conservation, a good shared context is to kind of look at the rich spectrum of conservation that's happened in, in the United States and North America and in the world, really, over time. Um, I kind of link it as like a narrative, right? It's a dynamic kind of spectrum. It's not something that's just set in stone. We have, you know, tools that we use. We have paradigms that we use, like North American conservation model and land protections and all this stuff. But it's a really dynamic process. You know, it started in the late 1800s with, you know, protections. And then in the 1930s, we get into funding. In the 1960s and 70s, we had this, you know, wave of public engagement. And so if you look at it over time, it's constantly evolving, constantly pulsing, constantly moving forward. And we're getting, you know, we're getting many, many benefits over this crude over time. So I think like looking ahead, um, you know, I think that there's an opportunity to say, okay, you know, how can we, how can we look at this as like a sustainability? Look at it in a, in a larger lens. We don't operate in a vacuum, you know, in forest conservation. We're we're part of interconnected systems that are playing out, and a lot of conservation issues are social issues. They're, you know, they're everything's connected, right? So, like one reason I'm in grad school right now studying global sustainability at Virginia Tech is to kind of look at this through a lens of like what systems are at play 
And like, how can we understand those systems and how can we figure out where the levers are? You know, how can we, we can't operate forest conservation or habitat conservation in a vacuum without understanding what the other systems are, like what the needs are for people, what the, the economic pressures are. And so I think there's a huge opportunity um, as conservation has evolved. You know, there's, there's um, you know, opportunity to take care of people now. And in the in the future, through sustainability, uh, balancing people, balancing places, balancing companies that are trying to you know make us make a run for it and and support the economy. So I think that there's an opportunity to kind of evolve over time into the sustainability mindset where you know we're doing better things for the planet. We're we're making good choices. And we're also kind of looking at things like how can we decouple from some of the things that have been problematic, the development, the fragmentation, to to make better decisions, to have win-wins where everybody can come out of it, where there's equitable access, where more people can enjoy the outdoors, where more people are prospering, where we have local communities and jobs and clean water, and we have outdoor recreation and we have wildlife habitat. So that's what I think about a lot. Um, that's what gets me excited. And I, I don't know. What do you think about it? Like what excites you about where we're going with conservation? Oh, man, that's I guess I gave you the big question. So I, I'm subject to it myself. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a kind of an old schooler, right? I don't necessarily love social media and all this stuff. But one of the things I, I think is interesting now is how much information is just right at our fingertips and how that's, you know, it can take some, like I could go and look up, you know, your forest plan where you live and get pretty educated on it and, and actually, you know, have a good sense of what's going on there. Um, there's, there's goodness to that. I think the downside is, you know, it, it probably takes away from some of the, the long-term learning and, you know, nowadays, it used to be you'd have to go hunt a place for five, 10 years, and then you get to really know it. And now there's subscriptions you can get and read all about, here's where you go in and here's the best season to hunt and all this, which, you know, that kind of perturbs me. But uh, I think overall, it, it's it, the ability to engage. Um, I think also I love seeing young people, um, their their ecological awareness. You know, I've got a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old and and just what they know and what their friends know and how like it took me quite a long time to know some of the stuff that they already know. And, 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 you know, you hear older folks or middle-aged folks like us kind of complain about youth sometimes, but I, I find that the, the converse pretty true that they, they actually have a good grasp and they care. And, uh, and, you know, they, they want to go out and get in the woods. And, you know, I know some of that's localized to a small town with a lot of public access, but in general, I think the, the youth care and, and they know that there's big problems that they need to tackle and, and they're starting to get engaged. So that, that makes me happy. Um, I also like seeing new kinds of hunters and anglers out there, you know, whether it be, you know, people who just are first generation, never did it before. And now they're, they're getting into it for food or, you know, different reasons, um, you know, different people who've maybe never had the opportunity, uh, for, for one reason or the other are now into hunting and fishing. And then that leads to conservation. Um, I love the, the kind of new way we tell stories around hunting and fishing, you know, uh, most of the time you'd have to glean those from sitting around a campfire, which of course we all love more, 
But at the same time, it's cool for me to be able to see something come across Instagram or something, uh, you know, somebody halfway across the country or even the world telling a cool hunting, fishing, conservation story uh, that's that I never would have been able to access before. So those kinds of things, the 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 bigger kind of, you know, I'll say global, but I, I maybe don't mean that big, just the larger community kind of sharing things with each other and sharing experience and love and passion for for the outdoors, that, that intrigues me and, and makes me happy to see where we're going. Um, you know, and I, and I think, uh, you know, at some point I just got to believe that we're going to get over the, the bipartisanship, the, div- the divisiveness, and, and we're going to go, you know, there's some enough common stuff here and let's, let's do it together. And, uh, I know listeners have heard me say, we got to act like a, like we're one big community. Like we all kind of live on the same block. Um, the whole country does. So, I'm really pushing for that, hoping for that. Um, that's that's the way I, I'm trying to traject that. That's where we're going in the future, um, because uh, you know some of the stuff is is just not working. And and then there's there's some good models for how it can work, and we need to go towards those. And I think you know a lot of the stuff you've talked about are that those those partnerships with landowners, these collaboratives, these these ways of getting everybody together and kind of co- hammering out some common values and and figuring out how to move forward. Those are those are inspiring to me and they give me a hopeful kind of sense. So that that's where I'm looking forward to. I love that so much. And I share passion like you with seeing new faces in the outdoors. And, you know, that's a, a big part of the work that I was doing with the podcast with, you know, it's why I love Mark Norquist at Modern Carnivore so much. Why I started podcasting with him is just helping people helping people get outdoors and enjoy the outdoors in whatever ways they can. And I completely agree with you. Like, it's exciting to think about how connected we can be like, you know, with all the downfalls falls of social media, there's still, you know, we can stay connected. Like through COVID, we, we can do this, we can share stories. Um, we can, you know, get our message out. So I think there's a huge opportunity. And I love what you said about, you know, getting over the bipartisanship. And the one thing that I think is so cool is like sharing a meal with people. Like you share a meal, wild food with people at your table and none of that stuff, like all of that stuff kind of gets put into perspective. You know, having a conversation, sharing a meal, one of the most basic things we can do as humans um, to to stay together is share stories and uh, have those meals and and to know where our food comes from. And there's a place for that now and in the future, you know, and I'm so excited to hear that your, your kids are interested in the outdoors. And I think the same thing, my daughter's nine, you know, we camp, we fish, she doesn't really deer hunt with me, but like we do things together in the outdoors. And, and it's just so exciting for me to see her, her personal passions and interests evolve as she gets a little older. So. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to ask you one more thing um, because I would totally be remiss if I didn't get some questions in about your podcast. You, you do two different podcasts. And so you're, you're a podcasting fella here and, and let's just talk a little bit about what those are. Tell folks about them, tell folks where they can find them, tell folks, uh, you know, kind of, what your North star is on each of them. Cause they've kind of got two different, you know, reasons for being and two different ways of thinking of things. Just give us a little overview. We'll, we'll kind of do a little, you know, 
little ad here for your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate that, Aaron. It's it's so much fun. I love podcasting. I love talking to people and hearing their stories and being able to help people share their stories. And that's really at the heart of, you know, what's driven my passion and interest for it over the years. And, you know, I started out in like 2017 or 18 with the East to West hunting podcast. And, you know, that kind of evolved um, over time, you know, our pillars there were, you know, providing a space for people, average people who love the outdoors to be able to tell their stories and to be able to share advice and to get people excited and to talk about conservation and how hunting um, interacts with all of that. And, you know, in some mentorship with that too. And that all came out of a Western hunt that my friend Jeff Jones and I did in Colorado in 2016, you know, we're Easterners for years we wanted to go out west and hunt you know there's all sorts of things that prevented us from doing that and then finally in 2016 you know i'm in my early 40s and we just did it and it was so such a monumental experience you know we got the idea to like hey there's probably a lot of other people around that that are like us and so that's the inspiration behind it And, and that was an amazing podcast. I mean, so many people to talk to, and I think we've done maybe 120 episodes and people can find it. It's called East to West Hunting Podcast, and it's out there wherever you want to listen. And there's everything from conservation stories to, you know, uh, pronghorn hunting in Wyoming to deer hunting in Maine and everything in between. And I hope you all enjoy it. Average people doing cool stuff and being really helpful about um, helping people get started. And the Outdoor Feast podcast has been such an amazing collaboration with Mark Norquist. Um, him and I collaborated on a wild food event in New York City in Brooklyn in 2019. And so we went mm, down to the heart nice. of Brooklyn in Williamstown. <laughs> and our friends down there, there were probably 25 people. And we did a wild food like venison and you know, pronghorn and different food. And one thing I learned was how passionate, how many people, even in a place like Brooklyn, the most heavily populated area in the country, there are people that care very deeply about conservation and care de- deeply about food and the connections and having how they kind of choose their their lifestyle around that and make their choices responsibly. And so Mark is, you know, he's got a platform called ModCarn. You can find it at ModCarn.com. And the Outdoor Feast podcast has just been, you know, kind of a, a, a partnership with them to kind of expand that conversation. You know, it helps urban hunters Um, connect um, with resources to be able to get them out, new hunters, you know, the food aspect, everything like that. So I'm really thankful to Mark and and his community um, for all the support they've given. And we've had a ton of fun there. So uh, as you know, it's just like the the joy of podcasting is just being able to connect with wonderful people, hearing some amazing stories, and just being able to help people, hopefully knowing that what we're doing is helping to inspire people to get outdoors and, and find ways to connect in, in ways that make sense for them. Yeah. I love it. I think one of my favorite parts of it all is the, the community. It's like, you're, it's like, you know, it's like, we're, we barely know each other that well, you know, we've only talked a few times and, you know, we know some of each other's work and stuff, but it's like, we're old friends when you get on these and you start telling, telling stories and, you know, then, then we'll run into one another here sometime in the near future and be like, we're old buddies, you know? And, and that's, that's one of my favorite things is just the kind of, you know, camaraderie and connection and, 
you know, the, the shared love of the outdoors and hunting and fishing and just being out there, man, that, that just carries so much. And it's, uh, it's nice to, to kind of get with the rest of your flock and just tell stories and talk about it. So I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on and, and telling some of your stories. And I'm, I know we're going to do some more stuff together here in the future. And, uh, We'll, we'll hopefully do some other professional stuff too with your work at, at Rough Grouse and some of the sporting work we're, we're taking on here at NWF. So just thanks for your time and, and let's keep talking and I'll give you a, one last chance to, you know, leave us with any parting shot, any words of wisdom you might have for us and we'll let you go. Thanks so much, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. I've had so much fun talking uh, with you and, and sharing some stories and it's wonderful. And for people, you know, I'm just going to put a plug for Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. Sure. You want to hear what, um, you know, some of the habitat projects that we're working on, you can go to roughgrousesociety.org. So I think, you know, there's some really cool work that's going on on um, national forests throughout the East, the George Washington Jeff, the Monongahela, um, the Green Mountain Forest. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of stuff and you want to see what kind of habitat work is going on, um, check that out. Really appreciate it. And otherwise, you know, just, just want to thank you for being here. And uh, yeah, I can't wait. I wish you the best this fall and uh, look forward to doing it again soon. Great. Well, you too, my friend. Uh, I'm glad you said that about the Eastern Forest too, because we get a little Western focused here sometimes, but uh, we, there's so much going on all over the country and I appreciate you saying those things and yeah, good luck to you this fall too. And, and we'll cross paths and we'll put some links in the show notes for folks to check out some, of uh, some of your work. And, uh, maybe, maybe when you're two, three years or something into that role and you've accomplished a bunch of cool stuff, we'll get you back on and you can tell us all about it. That sounds great. I appreciate it. All right, man. Happy trails. Take care. You too. We are NWF Outdoors.